When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. And I want to thank everyone who's joined our new message boards community on Clark.com. I love seeing how you're all helping each other, empowering each other. That's what they're there for. Now, that being said, you also help me. Help me become less stinky. And I don't mean take more showers. I mean, when you think that I need to be uh, talked to about giving advice that you feel stinks. That's why we have Clark.com slash Clark stinks. And it is time for your beefs with me with Krista. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. By the way, before you start, I really am stinky because I forgot to mention that coming up later in this podcast, I'm going to talk about the new debt collection rules and what your rights are with them. All right. And uh, we had several about this one. With regards to your fidelity comment on the 329 podcast that they don't offer fraud protection, I found a source when doing my own digging. I can't speak for other brokerages, but I hope this helps Douglas. And he sent the fidelity Yeah, link. And I thank you, Douglas, because... Um, Fidelity does offer the same kind of blanket fraud protection that Schwab does. And now it's time for Vanguard, the third of the big three, to step up and do the same as well, where both Fidelity and Schwab, without equivocation, have made it clear that if your account is hacked into, money stolen from your account, that you are 100% protected, even though, and it's such a hole in federal law, You're not protected under federal law with money in a brokerage account. And so, so, so many posts about uh, what you said about toilet paper, since we all use it. Uh, This one uh, is, I got a good laugh picturing you at the store doing price comparisons on toilet paper, but I don't think you figured out an important factor, ply. You get three times as much buying three ply compared to one ply with the same square feet. You would need to fold over the one-ply three times to get the equivalent of a three-ply, and probably still it won't be as good. I like Aldi's Willow Strong and Plush Three-Ply. Please do a real comparison and let us know the results. And that was from Carolyn in South Dakota, and again, so many others wrote in about this. So the the um, the toilet paper that I bought at Lidl, I'm trying to remember if it was two-ply or three-ply, I'll check. But my wife uh, got very upset with me when I was on one of those syndicated TV shows and I was talking about that I buy this special toilet paper for my wife. And she said, don't ever talk about (laughs) what toilet paper I use. So I'm not going to do that right now, except I do buy a nicer toilet paper for her than I do for the rest of us. And so she's 
comparing the Lidl. It's not. You still. <laughs> I'm still doing no, it. Yeah. Okay, are. I'll shut up. <laughs> I was wondering why Clark never mentions using keys as a second form of identification with brokerage accounts. With my Schwab account, they have tokens that you have to request from them that gives you a one-time passcode to use each time you log in. And with my Vanguard account, I have a blue Yuba key, which gets inserted into my computer to access the account after I've logged in. And that's from Amber. And Amber, you are completely right. We have talked about this before. The security keys are the most effective way, or tokens are the most effective form of two-factor authentication. In fact, I think the Wall Street Journal and New York Times just did a long write-up about why that is so much safer a way. And when you're dealing with the brokerage money, especially Vanguard customers, because Vanguard is, I've not been able to find where they're offering the level of protection against a hack of your account that others are offering, it's really great for you to do a security key or token. Basically, what it is, is you have this little device that you have on your keychain that when you need to access your account, this is how the simplest way to explain a common way of it being done. You put it in the USB of your computer and it gives a level of protection beyond what you have with the simple common thing of getting a text to your cell phone with a one-time use code. The problem with the text to your cell phone, the one-time use code, is the abject failure of the three major cell phone providers, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, to prevent what's called SIM card fraud, where somebody hijacks your cell phone service just for the purpose of stealing money out of your bank account or brokerage account. And so the two-factor authentication by text is not an effective form of security with what really counts, the money you've worked so hard to save. So the tokens or the little fobs... And there are third-party apps that do this too. ...is by far the most effective way for you to protect your accounts. And thank you for pointing it out again. I simply cannot believe that you are not truly into the points and miles game with how much you love to travel. You talked in a past podcast about airline miles, and you got so excited when you talked about booking on partners. The problem is that you talked about booking through domestic partners instead of foreign partners. Transferring Amex, Chase, City, Capital One points to foreign airlines offer award charts often with fixed redemptions when flying from the U.S. to Europe, Asia, Africa, etc., as an example, Turkish Airlines allows you to fly to Europe in business class for 45,000 points, uh, for 45,000 one way. Virgin Atlantic offered the ability to book Delta One to Europe each way for 50,000 points. My fiance and I just booked our honeymoon to the Maldives, valued at over $45,000 cash, flying on Qatar Q Suites Emirates business class and staying in an overwater bungalow for $674 in taxes and fees and $1,434 in credit card annual fees. You're missing out, my man. And this is not limited to international flights. Turkish allows you to book domestic economy on United anywhere in the U.S. for 7,500 points, including Hawaii. And that's from Spencer. Uh, does Spencer work for the points guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know what the points guy yeah. is? It's a website for people who want to get maximum use out of their points. It's, the pl- it's one of the great places to go. So the irony of this is you know that I used credit card points to book a fixed point award on Singapore Airlines 
to take my wife business class for our anniversary to uh, Singapore and Thailand. And it is so much better a deal than the typical mileage redemptions from our three full-fare airlines, American, United, and Delta, that use these mileage award charts. That They don't use charts anymore. That the miles just go all over the place, how many are required based on whatever internal modeling they're using. So, Spencer, I thank you for pointing out the advantage of so many airline partners to the credit card companies that you can do these very affordable international redemptions. Clark, your idea of a four-day week work week stinks. I heard you mention it again last week, and you interpret it as working four 10-hour days. And they link to a uh, recent news article that defines it as a 32-hour work week, four eight-hour days. Four 10-hour days are not healthy mentally, physically, or socially for families and communities. Please rethink your assumption. I know you like a good deal, but get your deals at the warehouse stores, not by being stingy with employees' time. Carolyn. <laughs> so, Carolyn... Why am I a fan of the four 10-hour days? Because I think about the mentality of most employers. They're thinking, wait a minute, I'm not going to get my employee to take a pay cut of 20% going to four regular work days from five. I'm going to lose productivity doing that. So for a lot of employers, they're going to have to just rearrange the days in order to get that third day off each week. And if there's an employer that's generous enough to say, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to give you an extra day off each week. Fantastic. But for the most part, employers are going to want those hours that they're paying people for, that they're actually working those hours in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I could have spit that out more easily, couldn't I? Okay, let's go to the next one. Clark, you stink for not expounding upon your decision to buy real estate in December of 2021. You slipped this in while talking about credit freeze, and I was left thinking, why would a man who loves a bargain buy real estate now when he himself described the market as wildly overpriced? How were you able to find a good deal in this market? Contented renter. So I may have misspoken in that. It was December of 20 that I bought a condo and it was an unusual situation where I was able to get a real deal on that condo if I closed in 20. And so I had to scramble and get it done. And so I was actually able to get a deal and um, it worked out for me. It was just an unusual very specific situation that I was able to be able to buy something below what the market is now. Clark, you stink for not, ex- oh, sorry, I just read that one. I've been <laughs> listening to you for over 10 years and you certainly don't stink, but I want to point out that Cash App is not as evil as you may think. While I agree that using it as a primary bank account is dangerous, I've had it for two years and I love the instant boost discounts they offer. I never keep money in my account, but I often use their offers of 10% off any restaurant. off any grocery store, and discounts on specific restaurants. That was from Jeremy. So, Jeremy, as I've said, I I don't hate Cash App or Venmo. I hate the lack of consumer protections with it, with both of those. Zelle has its own other set of problems. That's why you should make sure that you go into your banking app, whatever bank or credit union you use, and turn Zelle off because it can destroy your finances. Zelle is just a disaster. But Cash App and Venmo can also be problems with the hacking. And that's why nothing wrong with using them. 
My wife set up a separate account that she tied into Venmo. She doesn't use Cash App. And the only risk she has is the money she has in there to use Venmo. Having Venmo or Cash App tied into your regular main checking account is very, very risky. And by the way, it doesn't mean you open another account at the same financial institution. You have to open one at another institution because banks have in their agreements that if one account has a problem, they go and grab from another of yours at the same institution. So what I recommend for Venmo and Cash App, open an account with one of the online banks that you use for Venmo or Cash App, and it doesn't interfere with the money you need to pay rent, mortgage, car payment, all your regular bills. And I do want to just quickly read from Jeremy's post. Um, He says he often uses the discount as a way to tip a server or delivery driver more generously. Last year, I saved over $400 using this method. If you use it wisely as a discount card and nothing else, I think you minimize any risk but can save a lot of money. So just FYI, what a great idea. All right, now that I've taken more time up, we'll read this one from Don. Clark stinks, stinks. You say there are thousands of stinks submitted, and yet you only read like five. Come on, Clark, make the entire podcast stinks. We don't need more of what you do the other four days of the week consuming half the podcast. Thanks, and you really only stink 20% of the time, so give us the stink 20% of the week, Don. On the Clark Stinks podcast, we do a balance where most of this podcast is Clark Stinks. The second part of the podcast is shorter by design so we can get in as many Clark Stinks as possible. And we have done entire podcasts that are Clark Stinks podcasts. And if that becomes a regular demand, we can devote more time to it. We can serve one up soon. We'll try it out and see if everyone likes it. I think you may have dropped the ball with the advice you gave regarding Bradley from Oklahoma and his blind mother. He told you that somebody called her about her credit card being used at Amazon for $15,000. This is what you should have focused on first, not the credit freeze and switching banks. This is a popular scammer tactic, warning somebody that a very large purchase was made with their card, inducing panic so they make rash decisions. According to Bradley, she gave this person her zip code, date of birth, and the name of her bank. I could be wrong, but after listening to it several times, it sounded to me like both you and Bradley missed the fact that the person warning her on the phone was the crook. Nobody stole her card and made charges. In this situation, she should have kindly thanked the person, immediately hung up, and called the credit card issuer to confirm if it's true, Robert. Robert, I appreciate that, and you are right. I got so in the weeds on that issue that I spent too much of my time talking about the wrong part of it. I mean, the credit freeze was obviously valuable with after the fact, but yes, I should have concentrated first on the actual scam that was going on before I got into the overall remedies. That's what Clark Stinks is all about. And this one, when a recent caller asked you if she should realize the tax-free gain of $250,000 by selling her primary residence, you discouraged her from doing so. This was very short-sighted advice, especially because you focused on the cost and stress of selling a home. The selling cost of a house is tiny compared to the potential increase in personal wealth that could be created by diversifying this capital. Instead, you should have encouraged her to sell the house, realize the gain, reinvest a portion back into another house with upside potential while putting the remainder of proceeds into retirement or other mutual funds. I suspect her current house is not going to keep appreciating and that she knows this. If I had followed the same advice from from you, I would have never achieved the debt-free financial stability and independence I enjoy today. Josh. Josh, thank you. So 
yes, do Americans devote too much of their income to housing? Do we have houses that are larger than most of us need in the U.S.? Absolutely factual. That is true. And if the move is to devote less money towards housing, as you described, and then have money towards other purposes, that is basic blocking and tackling of standard financial advice. Because houses ultimately cost money, they don't make money. It's an unusual situation we've had in recent years. Because houses, the actual house depreciates over time, meaning the larger a house you have, the more it costs to maintain, repair, fix things that need replacing over time, like new air conditioners, whatever. So yes, if the issue is going to much less expensive housing next, there's a real advantage at certain stages in life of selling the property, particularly if your next move is to a lower price point house, there could be a real advantage to doing just what you said. And, you know, it's hard. There are times that I get into a thought pattern and I do miss a bigger picture. And that's why you taking the time with Clark Stinks is so valuable for me and for your fellow listener. So please keep posting those Clark Stinks at clark.com slash Clark Stinks. Now, I'll tell you what does stink coming up, the new debt collection rules that you need to know about and know how to protect yourself. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The rules for debt collectors have changed a whole lot. And it's appearing more and more because debt collectors weren't ready to use the tools when the new rules launch, but seems to be more and more present from the questions I'm getting. So now a debt collector is allowed to harass you on social media, by text, by email, an unlimited time, number of times per day. They can send you thousands of text messages and just try to make your life miserable. Fill up your phone with all those texts. Calling you, they're restricted. A collector now is only allowed to call you uh, basically once a day about a debt. Um, and you have the right with any of these things to make them go away anyway. And then they can't text you. They can't call you. They can't email you. They can't harass you on social media. It doesn't mean you don't owe the debt, but you have the right to notify a collector in writing that they are not allowed to contact you about the debt. And then under a longstanding law, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, they're not allowed to contact you about that anymore. They can sue you against it, and you could have a debt sold to another collector, and you start the process again, and you got to tell them. And again, it doesn't mean you don't owe the debt. But here's the other wrinkle, and it's been such a problem, and that's phony collectors, people hassling you, harassing you about a debt that doesn't actually exist, that you don't owe, 
or was known as a scavenger collector contacting you about a debt that long since statute of limitations ran out on. There's a period of time that's different by state on how long a collector can sue you against a debt. A debt can only stay on your credit report for seven years. What collectors will do, the rogue collectors, will try to get you to make any kind of good faith payment against this debt, even a dollar. Why do they do that? Because in most states, that then makes a 20-year-old debt one minute old. And then they can turn right around and sue you against the debt. You've got to know that there are crooks in this business and there are people who play it sleazy. If you owe a debt and you can afford to pay it, I want you to pay that debt. But I also want you to validate, verify that it is an actual real debt of yours before you engage with any conversation about paying anything. And you never, 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 not ever pay a single penny to any debt collector until you have in writing that payment of whatever amount you're paying constitutes payment in full. That can be by email, it can be by traditional mail, but somebody's word that whatever you're paying is payment in full means nothing. Nothing. You must protect yourself. And do not allow a debt collector to use this new obscene power to harass you all day long. And you may try to block their text. They'll text from another number. That's why if they become abusive towards you, you must use your right under the law to shut them down cold by sending that letter. I have what we call it the drop dead letter. We have it on Clark.com. You can send the drop dead letter. And then from that point forward, they are lawbreakers if they hassle you. Again, there are people in the debt collection industry that do a very difficult job and do it well with humanity and treat you with dignity and respect. And someone like that is who you want to be dealing with. Unfortunately, there are others that don't play the game clean. And you got to know the tools that are there for you in the event they don't play it clean. And pay really close attention to this thing with somebody coming after you for money for a debt that is outside statute, that is outside the number of years that they can sue you against the debt. you got to know your rights. Easy to do. You just do a search with any search engine. Statute of limitations for debts, state name. Fill in the state name. And you'll see what you need to know. And with that having been said, Krista, what do people want to know from me in questions right now? Well, Devin in Colorado wants to know this. I'm sure you've covered this in one of your many wonderful podcasts, but I can't find it. My question is, we are currently being sold an indexed universal life policy It sounds too good to be true. Before we dump $60,000 into this thing, I would love to hear your remarks or suggestions to this or another alternative. My wife and I are currently funding our Roth IRAs, and she has a 4% match 401k at work. Best, and I hope I hear your answer soon. Deep breaths. Okay, I'm trying to calm myself. 
I wonder what just happened with my blood pressure. I'm looking at my Garmin <laughs> to see how much my blood pressure just went up. Well, I can't see blood pressure right now, but beats per minute, they just went way up. Um, Index Universal Life Insurance is such a trashy, terrible, rotten, awful product. All you got to do is go on a search engine and put in Index Universal Life ripoff, and you will see one thing after another about what a horrible, horrific thing it is, what a theft of your money it is, and it's legalized theft. How weird is that? The insurance industry does not have to meet what's known as a fiduciary standard. And you're talking about a product here that has a contract, regardless of all the rosy stuff the salesperson told you. It's a contract probably that's 175 pages, more or less. And it tells you every possible way the insurance company is going to cheat you, is going to rip you off. And that salesperson gets a massive, gigantic commission off that $60,000. Odds are you will end up with substantially less money down the road than what you put into it. It is horrible. So if you have a need for life insurance for you and your wife, you each should have your own term life insurance policy that covers the other for the key working years each of you have. Level term insurance is dirt cheap. And then let's talk about what you should be doing with money other than putting it into a rat hole called Index Universal Life. You said your wife is doing the 401k at work, but you didn't say she's maxing that out. You said you're fully funding Ross. Be much better for her to put a lot more money in that 401k. If there's a Roth version of the 401k, do that. That would be much more efficient without the hideous, hideous, insurance charges, and massive commissions that make you upside down instantly in that garbage index universal life insurance. So next thing is you would be better off doing index funds with money. You know, buying the term life insurance that would be ultra cheap to own for 10 to 30 year cycle. And then you put money that you'd have left over, which would be almost all that 60000 and you put it in a variety of index funds where you own little pieces of the mark of companies across capitalism in a total stock market index fund. Go look at the Fidelity Zero funds that opposite this index universal life, you have no commissions and you have no expenses. Fidelity absorbs all the expenses and the Fidelity Zero funds. And the life insurance industry is a broken industry because they will not agree to live by a fiduciary standard which would require that the sale of insurance and annuities would have to be in the best interest of the customer. And why won't they do that? Because it destroys the life insurance industry's gravy train of massive commissions and massive expenses. Get away from the person trying to sell it to you, too. Okay. I cannot believe how many beats per mm-hmm. minute I am right now. 
Me too. My my parents were sold one of these years ago, and you know, and then the the financial advisor let them use his beach house for free. I wonder why. Most expensive free <laughs> rental Ooh. ever. All right, this is from Justin in Ohio. This will make you happier. I booked a minivan for a two-week summer trip in and around Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and Glacier National Parks for $1,300 via Priceline months ago during the Omicron wave. I thought that price was high, but since then, the rental prices have skyrocketed higher still. Is there any reason to be concerned that my now half-price reservation won't be honored when my family lands in Bozeman this summer? Will they honor my low-price reservation even when the prices have gone up so much? So, Justin, I don't want to freak you out. There has been a problem spot around the country, spotted shortages, spot shortages of rental cars, where regardless of what you've paid, they may be out of, they may have underestimated demand, they may be out of cars for a while, and people have to sit around and wait till the next car is available. It's not normally a thing where you get walked like hotels do, where they're full for the night and they say, hey, too bad. And we had a somebody with a question about being walked right. a week ago on the podcast. I wouldn't fret about that, freak out about that. And it could happen. The worst is if you're a late night arrival into Bozeman and your car isn't there. Often uh, when you first land, if it's a late night flight, you're probably staying somewhere in Bozeman and then starting your travel the next day. In that case, it's not the end of the world. You should expect the car rental agency to pay for transportation, a taxi, Uber, Lyft, whatever, to and from your hotel. You come back the next day, you should be able to get your van. The rates for summer are pretty obnoxious, but I have found I'm having good success checking rates again very close to rental periods this spring. And I'm finding that rates that were very high when I booked, when I would book a flight, or actually lower when I recheck them. Summer, not as much likely is going to happen. Have a great trip. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I love that trip. It's just so weird going from that insurance I thing know. to something so fun about going right. to the Tetons and Yellowstone and all that. This is from Denison, Ohio. Hi, Clark. I was recently diagnosed with sleep apnea. The doctor at the sleep center has recommended I purchase a CPAP machine to address the problem. They sent an order to a local medical sleep supply company that they commonly use, and they will be supplying me with the machine and all related supplies. This company will also do a mask fitting with me via Zoom. This sounds fine, but I can't help but wonder if I may end up paying a lot more for this equipment than necessary by blindly following my doctor's advice. I've seen CPAP machines for sale online, even on Amazon, And I know that there are other local companies that sell this type of device. I asked the doctor if I could purchase equipment elsewhere, and she said that I could, but they would just have to give me a paper prescription. Should I shop around for something like this? Absolutely, you should. You know, doctors are busy treating patients and don't really know the cost of what they're prescribing, where they're sending you for it. Uh, You also have to be properly fitted for a CPAP machine, as you said, even though this is a local supplier, they're going to do the fitting for a mask by Zoom. You could easily do the same thing with an online supplier. So getting the paper script is a good idea because it does give you the ability to shop around and see what is the best offer in the marketplace for the CPAP machine that the doctor is recommending. 
And this is fun from Dottie in Illinois. Clark, you talked this week about helping someone during a 5K in Ohio. My daughter ran an Air Force 5K about 12 or so years ago when she was 11. I was always talking about you and went to hear you speak to military members at Wright-Patterson once. Well, after the 5K, I later saw you and told my daughter to go ask you how your race went. You told her your time was slow because you stopped to help someone who fell. Fast forward to my daughter running in a junior high cross-country meet for school. Her time was really off, and I asked what happened. She said, I pulled a Clark Howard. Someone from another team fell down, and I stopped to help her up. By the way, she did make it to States the next year. Okay, that is so funny, and congratulations to your daughter. And that race at Wright Pat, it is true that I stopped to help somebody, and then a nurse stopped, and then a doctor stopped, and this person was in the right place at the right time to have a medical event because they were able to get a lot of help right there. I was the least helpful of the three of us who stopped. But the reality is I run so slowly, my time would have been bad anyway. But I hope I've given you a good time today on this episode of our podcast. And if you're looking for any of the resources that we've talked about today on the podcast or any other day any other day go to clark.com slash podcast and we have a link for you for each episode there are links for things i've talked about so you can easily find the info that you need you don't have to worry oh i'm uh, running right now i'm in the car can't write that down that's why we have it for you at clark.com slash podcast podcast